Number one, star dressing room, my prison and my home, my salvation and my doom, my Calvary, my Rome. Cyril Cusack is poet, playwright, author, but to most of us he is Cyril Cusack actor. If it's true that he was carried on stage by his mother as a babe in arms, then his career in the theatre has covered 75 years. He grew up in the heyday of the variety theatre and the touring companies. Well, I could say really that the variety theatre or music hall would have come to me in its influence through my mother, who was distantly related to the very famous comedian whose ghost roams around the London theatre still, Dan Leno. I remember, I don't remember Dan Leno, but I remember his son, Dan Leno Jr., who took on uh, something of his father's stature and and followed very much in his father's dancing footsteps. Well, uh, and I stayed with them for a little while when I was a child. So the influence would have come to me through that and... uh, Insofar as my mother was was engaged in music hall, like the Gay Gordons and the Earl of the Girl, and then later in Irish Review, Irish and Proud of It, and Irish as, as ever. I think uh, Irish and Proud of It preceded the First World War, and Irish as ever was um, traceable as a sequel to Irish and Proud of It. They both came to Dublin, and my mother was a chorus girl in that. And uh, then later, when it was revived, uh, I was about 14. Um, I took part in that review, um, uh, but it was a silent silent part, which I played the part of the boy uh, opposite uh, uh, the priest, who was played by my Protestant stepfather, and played very well indeed. The child of a theatrical family, Cyril Cusack travelled with the fit-ups, what he's called the flying columns, moving from town to town and from village to village. A different play each night of the week, and for him, a different school each week of the year. From that period, from uh, Irish and Proud of It, or prior to that, I should say, um, round about 1916 and 17, I was uh, travelling as a child actor in with several companies, the first company being O'Brien and Ireland. Jimmy O'Brien was a premier comedian at the time, in the, in the, in the best sense of the word, very much admired by Singh for his performance of the Chochron, um, which he played at the Queen's Theatre, Dublin. And uh, I went along with my, my mother, who by that time had become what we call a legitimate actress, um, which is uh, the parlance of the profession. And uh, I played um, in 1916 or 17 in Clonmel in East Lynn, playing Little Willie. Um, when my mother played Isabel and my father, my stepfather played uh, Levison and Carlyle, he played both parts. And it was at that time that uh, I had my first experience in film, Not Nagar, which is still extant. He became a member of the Abbey Theatre Company in what he called his salad days, and from 1932 he has played in over 70 of its productions. Tomas McCanna, a former artistic director of the Abbey, remembers how his relationship with Cusack began. When I came to the Abbey first, he had left. He had gone to films and uh, became an international star, both in the theatre and on film. And he only returned, I'm happy to think he returned during my first term of office as artistic director to play the lead in the Chacron, 
directed by Hugh Hunt, a very memorable performance and a very memorable production. And uh, it was only then I came to know him, uh, really, and I regarded him always as a member of the Abbey Company, temporary on leave to uh, <laughs> earn some money abroad or uh, to put on a film or two. And in fact, he has always regarded himself as a member of the Abbey Company. And when we have meetings of the shareholders where he is most eloquent and contributes um, the most valuable uh, ideas to the progress of the theatre, he always speaks as if he is a member of the company. He always refers to the Abbey as our theatre. And indeed, in many conversations I've had with them, I found that he is um, heart and soul always in the Abbey and with the Abbey. I didn't actually work uh, under the Fays in the Abbey Theatre, although later I did work with Willie Fay in England, who was uh, one of the originators of the Abbey Theatre. And uh, his concentration was on the delineation of character through the personality of the actor. I use the expression that, um, as regards, if you can use uh, style um, in this connection, I refer to it as personalization, the personalization on the stage of the characters in a play by the actors. The presence of the actors was very strongly felt in the theatre in those days, and there was a reciprocity of, of um, feeling and exchange of uh, emotional exchange. That was very important. The, the actors did not play for themselves only. I mean, it's sometimes said that you know that the actor is the the the, the perennial uh, egoist, um, but uh, that was not the case when I joined the theatre, which was in 1932, the Abbey Theatre. During his early years at the Abbey, he first played Christy Mahan in Singh's Playboy of the Western World. He had Anne Cleary for his Pegine, and later Breedney Lynchig. But the production of Playboy, which became something of a legend, was that by his own company in Paris in 1954, and later at the Gaiety in Dublin. His Pegine then was Siobhan McKenna. To me, um, the love story is very important, and I think of three love scenes. Uh, the first one uh, is in Act One, wh when he tells the story. And the second one is what I call the loneliness love scene. And, of course, the third one is the official love scene. Um, Cyril and I used to argue about that. But that was interesting. And um, sometimes we didn't see eye to eye, but I do remember um, when we first played it at the Gaiety Theatre... I shall never forget uh, the second love scene, as I called it, the loneliness love scene, when uh, she banishes him. And uh, he used to walk up to the door uh, with Peggy not looking. And when he used to click the latch of the door, I literally used to feel heartbroken. And people who saw that production always remember it. the light of seven heavens in your heart alone. The way you'll be an angel's lamp to me from this out, and I abroad in the darkness, spearing salmons in the owen or the caromore. If I was your wife, I'd be along with you those nights, Christy man. The way you'd see I was a great hand at corks and bailiffs, or coining 
funny nicknames for the stars of night. You, is it? <laughs> Taking your death in the hailstones or in the fogs of dawn. Yourself and me would shelter easy in a narrow bush. But we'd only talk, maybe. For this would be a poor, patched place to hold a fine lad as the like of you. If I wasn't a good Christian, it's on me naked knees I'd be saying prayers and pathers to every jackstraw you have roof in your head and every stony pebble is paving the lane with your door. If that's the truth, I'll be burning candles from this out to the miracles of God that have brought you from the south today. And I, with me gowns bought ready, the way that I can wed you and not wait at all. It's miracles, and that's the truth. Me there, toiling a long while, walking a long while, not knowing at all I was drawing all times nearer to this holy day. Uh, I've said to my sister, um, oh my God, you know, he's, he's, he's difficult to work with. And my sister said, I don't care. Something happens when the two of you are on that stage together. Her co-star could be unpredictable. During the rehearsals in Paris on a sweltering June day for Playboy, Siobhan McKenna watched from the stalls of the theatre as Cyril Cusack rehearsed the closing moments of Act One. So, the wonderful lines that Cyril has and which he said magnificently are, well, it's a clean bed and soft with it, and isn't it great luck and company I won me in the end of time? Two fine women fighting for the likes of me. Till I'm thinking this night, wasn't I a foolish fellow not to kill me father in the years gone by? And I don't know. But he was, he felt the bed and the soft pillow and all that, and then he started to take off his trousers. And there was nothing on under the <laughs> trousers, so Siobhan said, Cyril, I mean, we'll certainly get headlines. Are you really going to do that? <laughs> and of course, I wasn't supposed to know. Well, he turned round in surprise. <laughs> Cyril Cusack playing in Sing or Shaw or O'Casey became a regular event during his long career. More rare have been his appearances in Shakespeare. In 1957, at the Gaiety in Dublin, he played Hamlet for the first time. From such an actor, one might have expected an intellectual approach to the part. Um, no, I think I approached it intuitively and uh, just followed the emotional uh, challenge in the, in the part. I remember it was uh, said, which is uh, nothing to do with the... I'm being very simplistic about it all. Um, it was said that the, uh, the duel between Deertis and Hamlet was one of the finest that had ever been seen. And I must say, I got a great, great uh, joy out of that. Um, there's a story told in Simon Callow's book. You know, he, he writes a, a book about the theatre. And he, he mentions uh, having met McLeomore and my dear friend Michael... Uh, when asked about Cusack's Hamlet, he said, oh, you mean, uh, um, yes, poor soul, you mean the, uh, the Hamlet of Denmark Street. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Michael played the king in it, of course. And, uh, and, and, and my colleague Carmichael was the queen. The critic Alec Reed remembers that production at the Gaiety. I wrote a thoroughly bitchy notice about a little boy lost and that this was a foolish way to present Hamlet. The thing is much more than that. 
And so it was that I was said to have written in the Irish Times a very, very hostile notice indeed. Well, I said out straight that it was very much little boy lost and a whinging notice, not to put too fine a point on it. Did you see him play in the shock run? Later, yes. And what was your what was your opinion? Oh, well, that, that was lovely. I mean, that was that was a natural. He was naturally the person who would play that and play it with all the sort of gaiety that it needed. I always thought myself that Cyril had got panache. He'd got the joyousness of a of a performance. He wrote and directed his first play, Thuration Afrin, at the Gate in Dublin in 1942. During the Dublin Theatre Festival in 1961, he presented and played the title role in The Temptation of Mr. O, his own adaptation of Kafka's The Trial. Thomas McCanna, then a newcomer to the theatre, directed that production at the Olympia. He was later to direct Cusack in The Plough and the Stars, 15 years later at the Abbey. I think perhaps his performance as Gruther in The Plough was one of the best performances of Gruther I've ever seen, and his... I would say, however, that the best performance I've ever seen from Cyril was the magnificent Gaev he did in the Cherry Orchard, directed by Madame Knebel from the um, Red Army Theatre here. That was in 1968. What is it brings out the best in him as an actor? He is an actor to his fingertips. He lives acting. He, uh, his whole life is the life of an actor. Uh, I've often wondered um, how his observance of people, uh, rather like Chekhov, whom we are told used to sit watching people for days on end, perhaps in a railway station or somewhere where people gathered. And F.J. McCormick, I'm told also, although he didn't drink, frequently went into pubs just to sit in a corner and watch people and uh, observe how people actually behaved. Cyril has this, I think, from intuition. And certainly, watching his performance as Luther grow from day to day was an education in itself. Uh. The meeting will be over soon now. Yeah, <laughs> sooner the better. Not a load of blasted nonsense, comrade. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say it was all nonsense. Oh, no, after all. Fluter can remember the time when he only had Donny Chisler being taught at his mother's knee to be faithful to the Shan Van book. Jeez, that's all dope, comrade. That's the sort of thing the walkers are fed on be the bourgeoisie. Hey, what's all dope? Look, the I said that shouldn't. You see that mark there under my eye? Sabre slice from a dragoon in O'Connell Street. Yeah, I just feel that dint in the middle of me nuts. God, there's a holler. Yeah, a belt from a Bobby's button at a Labour meeting in the Phoenix Park. It must have hit in your big mistake. <laughs> Don't know what you ever done for the Labour movement. Oh, do you not? Um, oh, well, maybe I, I done as much and know as much about the Labour movement as some of the chances that's blowing about it. It's not a sense to be getting excited about it. Excited? Right? Who's getting excited? Nobody's getting excited. Taking something more than a thing like you to flutter a feather of Fluther. <laughs> Cyril Cusack as Fluther Good, John Kavner as the young Covey. Many of his roles, both on stage and on the screen, could be described as clerical. He's played every elevated role from priest to pope to the voice of God. In one of his first Abbey roles, he was a young seminarian. He was Pope Hadrian in Hadrian the Seventh. He was the whiskey priest in The Power and the Glory. He was a mafia cardinal in a Hollywood film, True Confessions. He's played numerous parish priests. And he was a wayward monk in the film version of Brian Moore's novel, Catholics. In that film, Trevor Howard played the Father Abbot. 
From his home outside London, he told us what it was like to work on that film with Cyril Cusack. some controversy. Do you remember either the controversy or the play? I don't remember any controversy though. That I don't remember. But I remember we foregathered with many other Irish friends and we've been friends ever since. Cyril Cusack's first appearance on the cinema screen was at the tender age of seven in Nognagao. By the 1950s, he was in Hollywood, winning an Oscar nomination for his performance opposite Jane Wyman in The Blue Veil. Yet he says of the actor's role in the cinema, it is incubated in the studio enclosure without benefit of audience, fostered by the director, and finally incarcerated in the lens of the camera. Yet he's worked for the greatest directors from Truffaut to Zeffirelli. The critic Kieran Carty has been writing about Cyril Cusack's screen career since the 1960s. Well, he's worked with an extraordinary number of directors, which, I mean, must indicate that he, he's uh, been directors, particularly top directors. I mean, they only work with people they want to work with. Caviani, I mean, for instance, in the uh, uh, Galileo. I suppose this is one, that was one movie where he went beyond being a character actor. He was the star. I mean, he had the, he had the lead role in that. And he, he, I mean, working in other languages, I think it was in Bulgarian or something like that. <laughs> Most of it was shot. But uh, Cyril managed to 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 establish his presence. I I, I think he's he's he's, a, he's a, one of these true professional actors. I mean, if he has a job to do in the screen, and cinema is a very professional medium, there's no time for the indulgence that you can have in in, in theatre. He he goes in, he does his job, whether whether it's in Bulgaria or Italy or America or whatever, or out in the uh, in the West in Catholics, the Brian Moore. Uh, film that Jack Gold made, which would be rather topical, I think, I'd imagine now, they revived it with Father Lefebvre, I mean, the, the uh, sticking to the orthodoxy of early Catholicism. But he was very good at that again. I mean, I remember Brian Moore talking about him during the film and saying that, I mean, he was so much a priest that he made them all feel like laymen on the set. <laughs> In a sort of rather mischievous way that Moore said, mind you, I don't think he'd be a such a good priest in real life. <laughs> so what is it that draws Cyril Cusack to these roles? And what brings producers to his door with offers to play priests or cardinals or even popes? I've no idea, um, unless it, uh, as I have described, it might have been a missed vocation on, on my part. I don't think I would have made a very good priest. 
I was invited by the Dominicans to uh, consider joining that order. The, 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 uh, when I played the Whiskey Priest, uh, it was in a tribute to Graham Greene uh, on British television. And uh, that, uh, I think, I, I liked that uh, role very much, and I think I, I identified myself with it. And when I came back to Ireland, a very nice compliment paid when I went into the Shelburne Hotel. I was on my own, and there were two or three Augustinian priests there. And one of them came up to me and said he'd just seen it in London. And he said it was the best retreat I've ever had, he said. He played a whiskey priest with a difference in Stomford City, the television adaptation of James Plunkett's novel. David Kelly was the down-and-out who slept in the church boiler house. Well, now. Um, <coughs> there you are, Father. Indeed, as you say, here I am. And what's more to the point, here you are. Aye. I, um, <coughs> was just entertaining me friend, Mr. Hennessy, to a cup of tea, Father, to keep out the harshness of the morning. To break me fast, you know, Father. After communion. I don't remember seeing you at the altar rails. And I was not aware that the office of Boilerman had free lodgings as one of its benefits. The thing is, Father, in the first week of the season, I, I do sleep here at night. I keep a slow fire going so as not to do harm to the pipes. And the dogs useful to you? In the matter of company, Father. Himself and St. Francis ought to get on very well together. Where do you sleep? On the coke, is it? I do, Father. Sure, it could be worse. Only it doesn't help their bronchitis. No, no, it wouldn't. Oh, well, <clears throat> rather be the, the dust, isn't it? I wouldn't spend too much time in here if I were you. I tell you what, now. If you call on my housekeeper later on, I'll see that she gives you a bite of breakfast and uh, a few scraps for the dog. Mm -hmm. Do you take a drink at all? Whenever God in his goodness pushes a drop under me nose. Yes. Well, now I'll tell her to give you supper something to take home with you. God bless your father. For the bronchitis, you understand. Writing in his autobiography about the late Ernest Milton, the actor Alec Guinness made this comment. I have admired several actors this side of idolatry, but only three have held quite the same fascination for me as Ernest Milton, Pierre Frenet, Charles Lawton and Cyril Cusack. They would make their own centre stage wherever they were, even with their backs to the audience. Yet in the theatre, Cusack had sometimes an uneasy relationship with his directors. Joe Dowling directed him for the first time in the original production of Hugh Leonard's play, A Life at the Abbey. Cyril, as you know, um, doesn't really regard directors very highly and, and sees directors, I think, as more of an encumbrance uh, to his performance than actually a help. And being a very young director at the time, or reasonably young at the time, um, I didn't quite appreciate the subtlety of that and, and tended to go, sort of um, go in with two feet flying, you know, um, uh, which did lead to clashes and did lead to difficulties. Um, 
I think in the, in the end of the day, I mean, the performance that he gave was, was quite extraordinary. It was, was, was very, very special. But there were enormous difficulties in actually um, our personal kind of uh, way of, of, of handling the material. There were real difficulties with, with um, a view I might have it and a view he might have it. Eventually, of course, his view prevailed because he was the one who went out on the stage and did it. Um, and I came gradually, as, as we went on with the show, to appreciate very much that behind the performance there was such a, an extraordinarily agile and, and uh, um, important mind that was with work on the text. It, it wasn't purely the actor um, deciding to be uh, the actor star or anything like that, that there was actually a mind at work in relation to the text. Um, and, and he himself, I think, felt that, that we didn't have enough rehearsal, which we didn't. I mean, you never do have enough rehearsal with a new play. Um, and that gradually as it played in, as the time played in, um, the performance deepened and deepened and deepened. And certainly by the time we came to play it in London, which we did uh, in, in, so six, six months later, it was an extraordinarily fine performance. And I don't think, I mean, it's ever been matched in that part. It's been played on Broadway by Roy Dutrice and played on television by Paul Rogers. But I don't think anyone has ever matched quite his sense of the man coming to the end of his life, um, uh, looking back on it, and being able to convey to the audience in, in, in utter simplicity um, the sense of failure and disappointment. And as I say, as the performance deepened, um, that became clear to me what he was doing. But in the early stages of rehearsal, the tension was... Uh, quite quite unbelievable and I thought that 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 we could never ever uh, find a personal relationship which in fact we subsequently went on to do. Now these few acres have more than a scenic claim to our attention. This hillside is all that remains of what was called the commons of Dorky. Now the town, because I, I speak in the Catholic sense, the Protestants call it a village, the town where it now stands was once only gorseland and firs, moorland, and wretched cabins. The coming of the railway in 1834 turned the wilderness into a place of habitation for the well-to-do, who were closely followed by the tradespeople, and members of the middle class who knew their place and on that account lost no time in leaving it. Mm. Well, the town grew, evolved, and procreated, as our presence in it bears witness. The population is uh, 7,400, which figure by simple division can be broken down into about, well, I'd say 600 persons per public house. It was known to antiquity as the town of the seven castles, of which uh, the two surviving are vermin infested, <laughs> the one being in ruins and the other the town hall. <sighs> yes, the climate is temperate, the birth rate relentless, and the, yes, the mortality, the mortality rate consistent with the national average. Cyril Cusack as Drum, the civil servant whose days are numbered in a life. When he played Christie to Siobhan McKenna's Peggyne in The Playboy in the 1950s, Marie Keane played the widow Quinn. For her, acting for the first time opposite Cyril Cusack marked a turning point in her approach to acting. In Act Two, I, I was playing Widow Quinn, I was on loan from the Abbey at the time, and um, there's two big scenes in Act Two with The Playboy. But 
He taught me something about acting there that I've never forgotten. I mean, I never looked back afterwards, really. Uh, like in the old days at home or in the Abbey, uh, you were given, you know, a, a director would give you moves and such a place, such a line you go to there and another line you go over to the table and such and such and this, you see. And you were rigid. Uh, well, not rigid, but you obeyed instinctively. But with Cyril, I suddenly discovered I was able to, and he did too, you see, to move within those uh, lines. And I realised I was now really playing with the original Abbey style. And it changed my acting a great deal, and I'll never forget him for it. It was wonderful. He, of course, was directing himself, wasn't he? He was directing the play. Not really. He had Jack Aronson, uh, what they call him in France, the mise en scène. But uh, he had a lot to do with it, of course. But, I mean, he had played it before. I remember the first time I ever saw Cyril play that part years and years ago in the Abbey was when he was very young and he was playing with Anne Cleary who was his Peggyne then and a great Peggyne she was too but he's such a detailed actor you know we've just done for the Abbey a tape of Philadelphia Here I Come for the schools it's on the school for the Leaving Cert programme I think this year and he played a part at last I suppose all of what seven minutes <laughs> you know it, he made a major part. You saw the man in all his sins and sadness and the whole thing. It was absolutely wonderful. And yet when he played uh, Christie in that production with you and Siobhan in Paris, he really was a little too old for the part of Christie, wasn't he? Yeah, but he didn't look it. I mean, Cyril has always been a juvenile in the heart, hasn't he? You know, Even now he doesn't look his age far from it. He d I don't see that much change in Cyril at all. That has been his influence too on his family. His daughters Surika, Sinead and Niamh are on the stage. Sinead is with the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford-upon-Avon. What has been her father's influence? He left me, he has left me with um, a criterion of acting excellence which I am forever trying to live up to or to come close to and never will. Um, he's... I have always thought that father managed to bring onto the stage or into a film scene or television scene a, a past, a present and a future. He was never one-dimensional. He was always multi-dimensional. And, um, and I think that's a great, great gift. Uh, do you think, Sinead, that there... I mean, you're, you are your own person in the theatre, but are there any idiosyncrasies, say, that you have uh, taken from him? <laughs> um... No, I don't know, but no, I don't think so. But father has a great ability as an actor to to undercut. Um, I'd love to have a little bit more of that. I, d I never have the confidence to, to to truly come in below the playing level of everybody else, but father does, and of course it's it's wonderfully effective. He's always been ready to work in Ireland with film directors in whom he finds talent. For Pat O'Connor, he made The Ballroom of Romance. For Robert Wynne Simmons, The Outcasts. And for Bob Quinn in Connemara, a film in the Irish language, Pochine. I went to him sort of in fear and trepidation, thinking he'd turn his nose up at such a ridiculously small part in such a small film. And uh, I was encouraged to do this by Tobin and McCann, who had already agreed, and I thought if I'd got away with it with them, that uh, Cyril Cusack might buy it as well. And he said to me... Uh, there's no such thing as a small part. There are only small actors. And he also said to me that 
a decent actor should never turn down any part. So he didn't turn it down, and he played it, and he played it very well. Um, the, the main difficulty was that I hadn't got a terrible lot of experience dealing with uh, actors of the calibre of McCann, Tobin, and Cusack, and uh, so I really just gave them their head because I realised very, very soon that my function was simply to keep continuity and make sure the shots were in order and that the lines were there and let the three boyos uh, have their head. And indeed, one day when I had the temerity to uh, suggest to Cyril uh, how he should uh, do a particular gesture, I was suggesting to him that he should breathe deeply and sigh and raise his shoulders. And he looked at me with a certain kind of sympathy, I think, and said, no, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be acting. But for an actor who once described the cinema as an offspring of stage and photography, is there perhaps a dichotomy between the areas of the cinema and the stage? No, I, none whatsoever. I remember Sir Carol Reed, who was the director in cinema, that is, of uh, Odd Man Out. We, we were talking about that very thing, and he agreed with me, or I agreed with him, or it was a mutual agreement, that... Uh, Acting was acting whatever the medium might be. There might be some technical requirement um, from the point of view of uh, positioning in, in films uh, and attending to a camera angle, but uh, essentially acting is, uh, is identification. No matter how small his role in a film, he seems to be able to bring a special quality to the character, the critic Kieran Carty. There's something about the way he can smile, the way he he he, he can almost almost without making a gesture or almost without saying anything, just in the slight tone of the voice, which is perfect for character acting. I, I mean, there was a marvelous. He gave a marvelous little character role in in Dave the Jackal, where he was uh, this gun expert that the Jackal came to to get this gun. And I mean, I'm sure Cyril, Cyril wouldn't know one end of a gun from another. You know, it's a, it, the way he held the gun, the way he he produced it, unwrapped it, and. Uh, gave it to, to uh, the jackal, the assassin who was going to kill the, the gold. You felt that this was a man who, who, who that nobody could possibly know more about a gun. And also, he, he there was almost a kind of a, a sensual kind of uh, pleasure in, in, in his handling of it. I mean, it, it, it was sinister. It was it, there's something about him? You felt this 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 man is really nasty. I mean, gun gun guns. He believes in guns. He. he he relishes what they can do, the destruction they can they can create. It, it was it was perfect. It was a very sh short role. I mean, moments really, a couple of minutes, I suppose, at the most. And yet it registers. It registers. In fact, I mean, it's one of the things you remember from Dave the Jackal. And it, it, this is the thing about about Cyril Cusick's performance in a lot of the movies, movies that you can't remember anything else about. You remember his moments. He has played in Shaw many times on the stage. His roles have ranged from the waiter in You Never Can Tell at the Abbey to the Inquisitor in St. Joan at Britain's National Theatre. He played Blunchley in Arms on the Man with his own company in Paris and Father Keegan in John Bull's Other Island with an Irish touring company. What attracts him to the great Dublin-born playwright? Well, I would say it's his scintillating dialogue and his very sharp Protestant-Irish wit, which I say is quite unique, and, and uh, I've described it as such. Uh, I would put it in two words. It carried uh, a satirical note, but with it a, a, a perfect, perfect honesty. I would say just in those two words that, that there's no deviousness about it, 
and uh, and also when I say Irish, there is the Irish flavour in his dialogue. I find as as well as in in the wit, and he brings in very often into his plays uh, an Irish uh, emphasis, an Irish bias, if you like, and uh, that is where uh, he finds favour with me. But I would say essentially honest, direct, sharp, and uh, and sometimes uh, sardonic is rather a harsh word to use, but ironic, I suppose, would be better. In 1956, he played with Siobhan McKenna again in a radio production of Shaw's Village Wooing. She was one of nature's ladies, he one of nature's gentlemen, and they meet aboard ship during a pleasure cruise. I hate to nag her, don't you? It's your privilege as a woman to have the last word. Please take it, and don't end all your remarks with a question. You are funny. Am I? I never felt less funny in my life. I can't make you out at all. I'm rather good at making out people as a rule, but I can't make head or tail of you. Well, I'm not here to be made out, and you're not here to make people out, but to revel in the enjoyments you've paid for. Deck tennis, deck quoits, uh, shuffleboard, golf, squash rackets, the swimming pool, the gymnasium, they all invite you. I'm no good at games. Besides, they're silly. I'd rather sit and talk. Well, then, for heaven's sake, talk to somebody else. I've no time for talk. I have to work my passage. What do you mean, work your passage? You're not a sailor. No. I make a precarious living on board ship by writing the Marco Polo series of chatty guidebooks. Unless I complete 2,000 words a day, I'm bankrupt. I cannot complete them if you persist in talking to me. Do you mean you're writing a book about this cruise? Yes, I'm trying to, under great difficulties. Will I be in it? You will. How thrilling. I've never been put in a book before. You will read me what you've written about me, won't you? When the book is published, you can read it to your heart's content. But I should like you to get me right. After all, what do you know about me? I will tell you the whole of my life, if you like. Great heavens, no, no, please don't. Oh, I don't care who knows it. Evidently. He was to appear again with Siobhan McKenna, this time on stage at the Abbey in 1968. He was Gaev, she was Madame Ranevsky, in Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. There was a wonderful scene that we had. Uh, well, the arrival scene um, was extraordinary. And then there was the scene by the river. And um, I had what Madame Knappel called uh, a monologue. It's not a soliloquy. Uh, and she explained that you that um, Ranievsky is talking aloud, knowing there are friends that her two friends are there that she loves and trusts, but she's not expecting any reaction from them. <laughs> but some nights, Cyril used to pop sweets into his mouth. <laughs> and I'm terrible. I hate any activity whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but I don't think he did it on purpose. But um, I used to think, now, really, Knebel said, no one moves. And we're just looking out at the water. But... Um, Yes, he used to pop sweets into his mouth um, during my <laughs> When Joe Dowling, who had first directed him in A Life, came to direct him again in a production of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice at the Abbey towards the end of 1984, he found that their relationship as director and actor had undergone a change. When we came to The Merchant of Venice, it was an entirely different experience. It was like uh, as if sort of one was the... the 
total opposite of the other. Because by that stage, um, as I say, I did know him better, and I therefore was prepared much more um, to, to, to watch the performance grow and to merely be um, there to sort of service the performance, which is a very different way than one normally works as a director. But that, that I did, and, 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 and we got on extraordinarily well on a personal level, and I think he gave in Shylock um, one of the finest performances of, uh, of recent years in the Dublin Theatre. I mean, I think his, his, his handling of that role was quite, quite extraordinary and unique. Um, and, and uh, you know, to, to have done that uh, uh, at this stage of his career, I mean, it was an extraordinarily brave and courageous thing to do. Um, and to do it and, and, and make it what it was, which in my view was one of the best Shakespearean performances I've ever seen. I am a Jew. Had not a Jew eyes, had not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions. Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not love? If you poison us, <laughs> do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Huh? Revenge! If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be? By Christian example, why revenge? Cyril Cusack is undoubtedly the doyen of the Irish theatre, honoured with doctorates by a number of universities. And if this were another place, he would have earned his knighthood by now. He regards his career as a reflection of the continuously evolving tradition of Irish acting. But in the years to come, will he still direct his talents as an actor in the theatre or in cinema and television, or as a poet and a writer? I think perhaps... I have accomplished my career as an actor and I would like now to attend rather to, it may be a, a, a talent um, which has not been explored as well as I would like to and uh, I would like to, to give my time, if I can find time in the remaining years, to some writing and see if something can be discovered of value. I have, of course, had some poems published and I have been asked by uh, one or two publishing companies to engage in this um, peculiar exercise of uh, trying to reveal my ego uh, and uh, I, I shall attempt to do that. <laughs> 